Well, good morning. Uh, We're actually going to start off by playing a little game. Uh, And Jack is out of town, and it's too late for Marvin to stop me, so I think we can get away with it. I'm going to ask you what's the difference between something, and then I just want somebody to raise their hand, and if you get it right, I have a gift card for you. You might need your phones, maybe have your calculators, but don't be looking it up while your hand is raised, okay? So first question, pretty straightforward. What's the difference between 150 and 75? I saw in the orange, Adidas. Perfect. And also, don't worry about it if you get it wrong. We're all just going to point and laugh at you. It's no pressure. All right, my cheat sheet. What's the difference between 4,732 and negative 268? 4,732 and negative 268. 5,000, perfect. That was maybe as fast as the guy in the first service. You guys will have to duke it out later. Okay, this one's for the kids. If you're 12 and under, you can answer this one. What is the difference between 32 and 25? 12 and under. Perfect. No Starbucks for you. You get Roblox. (laughs) Now for the English majors, except for Marvin. (laughs) We're going to switch away from math, and we're going to do, what is the difference between affect with an A and effect with an E? Right there? Nailed it. Last time, I didn't hear the guy, and I got all mixed up, and he had it right, and everybody was pointing and laughing at him because I said he was wrong, but whoops. All right, this one's not for real. If you get it, you get it, but what's the difference between a sweet potato fresh out of the oven and a pig tossed off a balcony? One is a heated yam, and the other is a yeeted ham. No. Sorry, dad jokes. Okay, what is the difference between righteous and unrighteous? Or what is the difference between holy and unholy? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the difference between, or more specifically, we're going to be talking about being different ourselves. So far this ministry year, we've been using... Titus as a launching pad into talking about various topics and what the Bible might say about those topics. And so far, we've been focusing mostly on Paul's list of qualifications for an elder, for anybody who would like to be an elder or an overseer at the church in Crete. And today, we're going to be focusing on righteousness and holiness. And they're found in Titus 1.8, and I'm going to read from Titus 1.7 and 8. It says, for an overseer or an elder, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. Now, upright is often translated righteous, holy, and disciplined. And we're focusing on upright or righteous and holy today. Again, let's remind ourselves that just because Paul set these up as the standards for 
uh, or the qualifications for an elder, this doesn't mean that we can just dismiss them because, oh, that's for, you know, those guys. There's no such thing as a super elite Christian in the faith. There are only Christ followers who start out immature and begin a journey of growing up and maturing in Christ. These things apply to all of us. So along with all the other characteristics that define an elder, we should be setting up righteousness, as, and righteousness and holiness as things that we should be striving for, things that we should be trying to obtain in our character. But what does it mean to be righteous or holy? What does it mean to be different in these ways? Well, today we're going to look at righteous and holy through the context of having standards. Now, my dad had a really good steak marinade recipe. It was one of my favorite things that we got to eat as a kid. And, you know, we didn't make a ton of money, so I didn't get it a whole, you know, all that often. But whenever we did, it was such a special treat. Mom would make some veggies or some cheesy potatoes, and that was fine. But dad's steak that he would marinate for 24 hours at room temperature, and then he would grill it and sear it to perfection was what I always looked forward, for, forward to. And so the first time that Tama came over to have dinner with my family that my dad was making this particular steak, everything's ready. My dad has made the steak, it smells so good. Mom's made stuff. And we're all sitting around the table and we're just about to begin to eat. And all the anticipation and the, and the excitement was just completely shattered when Tama looked up and said, uh, do you have any ketchup? You ever seen the movies where uh, a, a dignitary or a president is getting shot at and the Secret Service throws a blanket over him and they rush him out the door? I threw a blanket over Tama's head and we got out the door before the bullets started flying. Now, I'm embellishing that a little bit. My dad actually handled that grievous insult with a lot of dignity in class. He just took her plate away, threw it away, and made her go hungry. <laughs> now, why did dad do that? Because he had standards. My dad had culinary standards. And in any good Christian home, you do not put ketchup on a marinated steak. Maybe some seasoning or barbecue sauce, but not ketchup. My dad had standards. Now, that's kind of a goofy illustration, but in life, we have standards. My son wrestles, and our town, Eaton Rapids, has a strong uh, tradition of, of a very good wrestling program. We frequently produce state champions, state championship teams. And we don't teach junk moves like bulldogs and headlocks and chin whips. Those are all fine for kids, but you try to pull one of those moves when you start getting older, and you're going to get in trouble because there are very powerful counter moves for that. Eaton Rapids Youth Wrestling Club has some standards for how they bring up their wrestlers. My daughter, Alora, she did color guard all through high school. And in high school, you can, generally speaking, show up and you'll be able to do color guard if you can at least hold up the flag and twirl it. Well, Alora would spend hours and hours and hours and hours out on the back deck, and I would kind of pick on her because she was out there twirling, and when it came time for her to apply because she wanted to go to state and be on state's color guard team, this is a different story. This is a Big Ten Conference team. You don't just walk on and get to be on the color guard for Michigan State, but because Alora had practiced so much 
she was able to try out, and out of the 30 or so that tried, nine made it because she met their standards for how good you had to be to be on Color Guard. We all have standards, and standards matter. Sociologically, we have standards. Politically, we have standards. When it comes to our friends, our jobs, our hobbies, we all have standards. There's no blue and maize, green and white. We have standards. <laughs> well, what are God's standards? What are God's standards? God's standards are righteousness and holiness. Generally speaking, the standards of God can be found in what we call the law. It's in the Old Testament, and it's kind of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's essentially God's instructions through Moses to the people of Israel about his standards for them under this covenant that he was making with them. This is why we often call the Old Testament the first chunks of the Bible, the old covenant, because it was an agreement between God and the people of Israel through Moses. But that law part of it, which is the first five books, is what we call the, the, the laws of God. And the law is God's standard. It reflects his goodness and his standards, his character towards his people. Let's take a look at how this law typically intersects with humanity. The author of Titus, Paul, also wrote another letter to a church in Rome, and in it he talked about the clash between society and God's standards of righteousness and holiness found in the law. Listen to this. Romans 1, 18, and we'll go to about 2, 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever." For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one, one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, 
heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, let's be honest with ourselves. That doesn't really sound like it was written 2,000 years ago. Sounds like it was an op-ed from yesterday. It almost perfectly describes our enlightened Western culture. Think about how aggressively our culture tends to stare truth in the face and deny it. Thinking ourselves to be wise, we as people often want to place our own thoughts and our own understanding up on this pedestal and pretend that the things that we think about the world must be right. It must be true. But this is a really dangerous position to be in. God has not left humanity on its own to figure out and determine its own standards. He has made them clear and he requires that we acknowledge him and his standards. But before I get all high and mighty and up on my soapbox, I have to be honest with myself. When I look at that list of unacceptable behaviors that we just read about, I know full well that I'm condemned. Because it's probably safe to say that I have been or am guilty of virtually everything that Paul talked about in that list. The reality of life, though, is that none of us can meet all of God's standards. We are born with a nature to sin and the defiance of God's standards that we inherited from the first humans. In Psalm 51.5, it says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every single one of us has this disposition and this proclivity to sin. It's built into us. We don't all manifest the sin nature the same way, but it all comes from the same source. We've inherited it. And before any of us can talk ourselves into thinking that whatever particular sin or sins that we struggle with aren't that bad, the Bible ups the ante on us. In James 2.10, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's a high standard. And friends, we are all sunk under that standard. We are helplessly and hopelessly condemned under the standards of God, which makes him sound like this horrendously selfish, brutal taskmaster just waiting to condemn anyone who slips up in the slightest. But we need to avoid that trap, that kind of thinking, because we can expand our thinking and really understand what the standards of God are for. See, God created all things for his pleasure, and he loves everything that he made, wanting the highest good for all of it. And this is exactly where we bump into this little thing called the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Let's cover a short explanation of the gospel. So God created everything from himself and for himself, including humankind, and he created everything to live and be a certain way. Within his creation, with humanity, God chose to infuse some of his own likeness, namely his nature as an eternal spirit, which comes with the ability to freely make choices. No other created thing has the very image of God built within it. 
And I think this is an endlessly fascinating thing about our creator. He seems to highly value creative freedom. Imagine, God has complete authority and power over absolutely everything, yet he gives part of his creation the ability to discover, to create, and to invent within his creation. And in doing this, in some ways, he seeded some of his creative ability to humanity. So we have the ability to choose things. In other words, we can manipulate his creation and the way that it works. We can even screw it up. In fact, humanity from the very first human has chosen not to live in alignment with the way that God said he wanted us to live. And that rebellion, that misalignment, breaks the bond between humanity and God. Worse yet, it inhibits any human from being able to rise up to the good that God wants for us. You see, we have the freedom to make choices in our lives, but we do not have freedom from consequences. So what did God do? God inserted his own fullness, not just his image, into humanity in the form of one human child, Jesus Christ, who would grow up still fully God, but also fully human. Being God, Jesus fulfilled and completely met the standards of life that God wanted, perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. He always used his creative ability and chose at every turn to honor God within his creation. Perfectly. Nevertheless, Jesus would take on himself the fullness of the consequences of the rebellion of humanity without deserving any of that condemnation. And in so doing, he created a way for humans to embrace his sacrifice and repair the broken bonds between humans and God, allowing any of us who choose his way the ultimate restoration of our being in alignment with the way that we were created and back into a bonded relationship with him. You see, God did not create humanity to be an entire species of drones who never stepped out of line. He created us as a diverse species with a marvelous freedom an ability to create, but he wants us to use that freedom to honor and love him and to honor and love one another. There is a process to our embracing the way that God has made. It first requires that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, which is just a fancy way of saying that the Holy Spirit reveals to us that we are in a state of misalignment, being broken away from how we should be and broken away from relationship with God. If a person accepts and acknowledges this brokenness, this misalignment, then they can begin to realize that they have no way to repair the damage on their own. And according to the Bible, the only way to have that damage repaired is to agree with God that Jesus is Lord of everything and then to believe to our very core of who we are that Jesus thoroughly paid for our mistakes and our misalignment with his sacrifice on the Roman cross and that his resurrection from the dead gives us access to new life in him. That's the only way. But once we cross that threshold of faith in Christ, we become a member of his family as Christ himself's brothers and sisters, but we should begin a journey 
of becoming more and more like him. We're supposed to be people that are becoming more righteous, more holy like he is. Okay, so how do we do that? Very simply, there are two steps. Step one of conforming to the standards is to know them. If we're called to be different, we should start by knowing what the difference even looks like. Step one is to know God's standards. In Psalm 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If we want to know the standards of God, we need to meditate on his law day and night. Now, I'm not talking about 24-7 sitting there with your Bible open doing nothing else. But I am talking about a posture of constant familiarity with the word of God and what he actually says about things. Now, there are multiple ways to take in the word of God, but I generally just focus on three simple things in, in knowing God's standards, knowing his word. The first thing I simply do is I read it. I read the Bible. If you've been a Christ follower for any length of time and you have not read the Bible from start to finish, then I would highly encourage you to do that. It's early enough in the year that you can get the Bible app and you can start a year, a Bible in a year program. They even have Bible in two years or Bible in three year programs. Go do that and commit to start to finish reading the entire Bible. The invitation is open for you to do that. It would be a great practice if this local community within it, each of us committed to once every five or so years reading the Bible all the way through. I'm not talking about a hard and fast rule. We're not trying to become legalistic with this. But I'm suggesting a principle that will help us be familiar with what God actually says about things and not just what we think or we feel that he should have said about them. And then the, the other, another way that I focus on consuming the word is simply memorization. Now, I know that this sounds really old-school Baptist, Go memorize the King James Bible. But listen to what the Bible actually says about this. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You don't get any more basic than that. Memorize some parts of the Bible. Memorize as much as you can. Make it a regular thing that you want to go, and if God gives you a verse, memorize it. And then the last, thing, last way that I want to talk about being familiar with God's word is definitely to meditate on and study it. To know God's standards, we also need to meditate on, study, meditate on and study the Bible. This is where we slow way down and we grab a little chunk and we think about it and we dissect it and we do, look up all the cross-references. We diagram the sentence we look up the original language, but most importantly, we have an ongoing conversation with the Holy Spirit. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me in my context, in my life? And that leads us to the second major step of conforming to God's standards. It's not only to know them, but to obey them. 
Step two is to obey God's standards. So if a police officer pulls me over and he comes up, knocks on the window and he says, do you know what the speed limit is here? And I get the answer perfectly right. It's 70 miles per hour. Does it matter at all if I was just going 95 miles per hour? Nope. He's going to cite me. It does not matter if we perfectly, flawlessly know God's standards, but we will not follow God's standards. And as disciples of Christ, we should be on this journey of learning and obeying the laws of, and standards of God. So, down to brass tacks. What does that look like in our day-to-day lives? Well, here's what I found that it tends to look like. First, we set out and we find a community of believers that we feel comfortable with, and we call it our church. This is probably the community that led us to Christ, but maybe not. And then we plug into that community by attending their weekly services and then maybe some of their special events and then maybe we join a smaller community or a smaller group within that church. And all along the way, we follow our own heart and the settings, places, and people that make us feel welcome and comfortable. Incidentally, the things that tend to make us feel the most comfortable are people who are basically like us and people who generally agree with our preconceived notions. So we end up in these insulated communities that think and behave like we do, and we all agree on the same set of religious standards pretending to have adopted the standards of God. But we're missional about it, so we have to proselytize. God told us in the Great Commission to go and make more people like us. We have to spread the word that our ideas and our way are the right way. So we adopt a mentality of denouncing any heresy or any belief that doesn't fit our version of the truth and any deviation from the laws and the standards of God as we understand them. Righteousness and holiness must be achieved and it must be our job to enforce that. So we circle up our wagons, we take shots at anyone who disagrees with us or questions our narratives about right and wrong and we do everything that we can to preserve the purity of our faith. There's a term for this, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is nothing more than the tribalism of which the entire world is guilty. I don't care where you look, all of humanity has been sucked into the trap of gathering with like-minded people and judging everyone who looks or acts differently. We tend to self-segregate by religion, by ethnicity, political ideology, socioeconomic class, and on and on and on. So if our idea of righteousness and holiness is that we don't drink and smoke and chew and we don't go with girls who do, (laughs) there is virtually no difference between us as followers of Christ and the world around us. Embracing our own self-righteousness is no path to spiritual maturity. It does not lead to the righteousness and holiness that God is looking for. Now, when we tend to think of self-righteousness, we tend to think of characters like the pompous and overly pious Pharisees with their, their nice garb and their phylacteries and all the ornaments. But I think we should probably tend to think of something that looks more like this. That's an example of self-righteousness. That's a regular schlub who shows up to work every day has his opinions, political, religious, etc., and subconsciously or even sometimes consciously judges people that don't think or act like he does. 
Self-righteousness is not necessarily a super religious elite. The reality is that we all do it. Let's look back at the last verse from Romans that I left off at, and it's right in the next chapter, Romans 2.1, it says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So going back to the game that we started with, there won't be a prize for this one, but what's the difference between 10 and 10? Zero. What's the difference between a pagan, a godless pagan, and someone who is self-righteous? I don't know that there is one. If we have ever judged another, particularly if we ourselves are guilty of the same things, now remember, kept the whole law, offended in one point, then we are condemning ourselves. I'm not saying that we as Christians can never call out sin, but we should first focus on the sin within our own lives, and then very carefully in genuine community within genuine relationships with other brothers and sisters. And there is also a big difference between calling out sin and calling out or condemning sinners. So if I'm being honest, At this point in our analysis, I'm pretty depressed because I've done all of those things. And then even when I've tried to clean up my life, I know full well that I've become guilty of self-righteousness. Where do I look for any hope? Is there anyone who modeled this for us? Is there a tangible standard that we can emulate? Is there anyone who is actually righteous and holy that has shown us the way? I think you know where I'm going with this. There is. There is one. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to only redeem us by dying on the cross and raising himself to life. He also came to show us the standards of God and how to follow them. So how did he live his life? First of all, he loved people like the Father loves people. And by loving people, I don't mean that he simply said he loved people, and I definitely don't mean that he went around trying to convert everyone into a mindless robot that looked just like him. His love for people was kinetic. He went to them. He spent time among them, interested in their lives, rejoicing with them in the highlights, and weeping with them when they were down. Jesus became such a friend of common everyday people that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. When was the last time any of us were accused of that? Notice that Jesus wasn't accused of being a glutton and drunkard because he actually was a glutton and drunkard, but he was accused of it because he participated so closely in life with people that he was associated with their dysfunctions. What if one of us was accused of being a drug addict because we hung out with friends playing cards with them while they smoked marijuana? What if one of us was accused by religious elites of being gay because we went to a pride parade with a friend that we loved? What if one of us was accused of being a drunkard because we frequented bars and liked hanging out with people who hated their lives so much that they wanted to drink it away? What if one of us 
was accused of soliciting a sex worker because we befriended one with the love of Christ. While there is absolutely a fine line between celebrating sin and loving sinners, I think that we are often more concerned with appearing holy and righteous than actually being holy and righteous. That isn't the model that Jesus has left for us. He was actually holy and righteous, but he went after people with love in tangible ways without becoming like them in their sin. One really interesting group of people that Jesus also went after was the religious elite themselves. And this gives me a lot of hope in my own self-righteousness. So before we get too disgusted with the self-righteous Pharisees, let's remember that Jesus loved and pursued them too. Nicodemus was a Pharisee whom Jesus won over with his love and with, with his reasoning. Many of Jesus' conversations that we have recorded in the Gospels are with Pharisees. And many of those are desperate pleas to get the Pharisees to repent or change their mind about their self-righteousness. He ate at their houses. He engaged with them in their synagogues and he never seemed to give up, with them, give up on them. Certainly he opposed their dogmatic teaching and their hypocrisy, but he still loved them as image bearers of God. In short, Jesus inserted himself into the lives of all kinds of people, but he remained distinct from them. Though he would traffic with prostitutes, he didn't solicit them. Though he called a tax collector to become a disciple, he didn't become a thief. Though he called a religious extremist, Simon the Zealot, to be a disciple, he didn't become a terrorist. And though he sat with Nicodemus and loved him, he didn't become someone who lorded over and judged the destitute. So, friends, if our idea of righteousness and holiness does not include loving and pursuing people wherever they can be found, we are not following the model for righteousness and holiness. And in reality, we are no different from the rest of the world. If we truly, truly want to stand out, if we want to be different, if we want to be set apart, if we want to be holy, then we will pursue God's actual standards of righteousness and holiness with love both for God and love and compassion for our fellow human beings as image bearers of God. And in so doing, like Christ, we will genuinely be different. And I'm gonna close with that, with a invitation to be genuinely different like Christ was. And I'm gonna invite the elders and the prayer team and the deacons to come down. Uh, If you have any need for prayer, then we will be down here at the front and you are more than welcome to come and and share with us and we will pray for you. Um, I'm gonna pray and elders, deacons, prayer team, you can come down and then we're dismissed. Father, I thank you that even though I was helplessly and hopelessly lost, you made a way. And you loved me and you pursued me, even though I had profaned your name, and even though I had rejected your standards, and I thank you that you've made that available to all of us. And God, if I have preached anything that would bring about guilt or shame in anyone, I just pray that you would snatch it away 
and that your love and your compassion for your people would prevail. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a blessed week.